Well, good morning, church. It is always good for us to be together. So we are beginning a new message series this morning, and and whenever we have one of these mornings, I'm always filled with anticipation as as we get to share in in something new together. I'm also filled with, with trepidation because I'm never absolutely sure that as I start to describe the new series we're going to be journeying through together, if, if you're going to be anywhere near as excited as I am. And that's especially true uh, with this particular series. We're calling it The Words You Long to Hear. And you may be wondering how I can know the specific words that you want to hear, especially when it comes to the words that you want to hear in your soul from the gospel. Last time I checked, which happens to be earlier this morning, there were 7.8 billion people on the planet. 7.8 billion people. And if we're going to be really honest, you could say that the gospel has something personal and specific and unique to say to each one of those nearly 8 billion people. And on the other side, we'd say, well, you know, the truth of the gospel is pretty straightforward. And so it's a a message that that we all need to hear. And and maybe there's something unifying in being able to hear it all in the same way at the same time. And so you kind of have these two extremes. And I think they're both both the the reality that we're facing. Both both extremes are, are real. That the gospel's for everyone, in every place, and every time, and it's meant just for you. So how do you balance that? How do you balance that as a church? How do you balance that reality as a a teacher or a preacher? When I was going to school at ACU, I remember one specific class. It was called Narrative Evangelism, and it, it was a class that was supposed to help us think through how our own life stories connected with the story of the gospel and how we could then share that from a personal, personal perspective with someone else and help them think through how does the story of their life intersect with the story of the gospel. So one of, we, one of the things we did right at the very beginning of this, this class was we took a test, not the kind of test you study for, but the kind of test that's supposed to help you understand yourself a little bit better. And so you answered all different kinds of questions about what mattered to you the most and what kinds of experiences you had, the the way you thought about God, the way you thought about Jesus, the way you thought about the Holy Spirit and its role in your life and the life of the world. So you take this this test, and at the end, the class was, was pretty much divided into five large groups to say, you know, yeah, specifically just to you, we, we'd have to have as many different groups as there are people in this class, but just roughly in terms of, of, of breaking you up into groups that we can, we can then work with, we're, we're going to put you in these five different groups, which represented five major ways of thinking about yourself and thinking about the world and thinking about God. And then we worked on these projects where we presented the gospel for that kind of person. You know, was it somebody who really thought that what was most wrong with the world was conflict, and so what the gospel could bring was reconciliation? Because there's people out there who've never heard anything about Scripture. They've never heard anything from the church, and they still, deep in their, their bones and their souls, believe that what's wrong the most in this world is conflict, and so what we need is reconciliation. 
You know, we, we had a group that talked about condemnation and forgiveness. People who, who live their lives wrestling with shame and, and their mistakes and, and feeling like there, there, there might be no real hope for them and, and needing to hear from the gospel that it doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you anyway. Right? And we, we did this all semester. And, and the main thing I want you to, to hear me sharing with you from that experience was it was the first time in my life that I thought, I almost always share the gospel or preach the gospel in the way that connects with me the most. Because it's just how I think about it. It's, it's what makes me feel the most comfort or the most challenge or the most courage, right? And I think, okay, well, if I want to hear it that way, then you want to hear it that way. And, and maybe there are people in this room that want to hear the gospel exactly the same way that I long to hear the gospel. But then there's a bunch of you that that's not how you see the world. It's not the kinds of experiences you've had. It's, it's different, that is never, that feeling, that moment of realizing, you know what, there's multiple ways of sharing the truth of the gospel, and, and we need to work to get outside of ourselves enough to think through, if the church is called to share the good news of Jesus with anybody and everybody, then we need to work harder at figuring out how do other people see things, and how can we speak to that? And in order for that to happen, we need to experience it ourselves. Now, you may be wondering, what's this kind of quilt-looking image that, that we have for this series? Why, why are there nine squares and all of that? And, and I just, the reason for that is because I want you to know where I'm coming from here. Now, how many of you have heard of the, the term the Enneagram? How many of you? Put your hands up if you've heard of it. I didn't ask you if you've heard of it, and it annoys you. I just asked you if you've heard of it. Okay. Okay, I want to be real clear with those of you who've never heard of it before. I did not say pentagram, okay? I said enneagram. Now, all that is is a, a Greek term that means nine and then drawing, right? Or nine and writing. So just that's all it is. It's just describing that there's this ancient way of grouping people, not into five groups. You can pick any number, right? But into nine groups. Now, if you're interested in this, I, I hate to tell you, I'm not going to be doing much with the Enneagram in this series. If you want to go deeper, if, if you're kind of someone who likes to learn on your own, you could get this book, The Road Back to You, which is a really good introduction to it. If you want to go a little bit deeper in, in a Christian perspective as well, you could read this book by Richard Rohr called The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. And, and as we try to look at how spiritual directors and Christians have used the Enneagram, it's been for generations that this has been a tool for people to see themselves and to see how they, they react and interact with one another and with God, okay? All, all the nine means is there's nine different large groups of people, okay? Now, here's the thing that in my own experience, this is what's been really helpful to me. The unique contribution of the Enneagram is that it focuses more on what motivates our behavior than on our behavior itself. Which so many of the kinds of, I guess for lack of a better term, personality tests I've taken, and by the way, you don't take a test for the Enneagram. They're on the internet, but they're not, they're lies. So don't, you know, how the internet is. So it's not a personality test, but so many times when you take those, you're focusing on your behavior. 
and then you're focusing on other people's behavior, and you're figuring out before maybe they do, you say, well, you're this kind of person according to this, this personality test, right? That's not how the Enneagram works. It's, about, it's, a, it's a journey of discovery of why you do what you do. So what that means is it's impossible to look at somebody else and figure them out. Because what you're going to do is you're going to see their behavior, and then you're going to assume that you, you would act that way because of these reasons, so they must be acting that way because of those same reasons. And so the, the Enneagram has helped slow me down in assuming I know why you're doing the dumb thing you're doing, or why you're doing the incredible thing you're doing, or why you're doing the anxious thing you're doing. Like, I, I start to, to slow down and say, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe I should ask a question instead of assuming I have you all figured out. That's been helpful to me. But here's the thing. It's been the, the, the thing that's really changed everything for me in terms of, as I think about the gospel and sharing the gospel, it's helped me remember that while this way of talking about God or Jesus or the church or the Holy Spirit resonates with me, there may be a better way to talk about it so that it would connect and resonate with you. right? That, that in other words, all of us have these ways that we need to hear the truth of the gospel. And all truth is God's truth. And there's lots of different ways that we can share who Jesus is to us and what he can be to somebody else but we've got to do the work to figure that out, okay? So what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at these broad groups of people. And what I want you to do is just think, as we go through this series, I'm never going to do another recap about the Enneagram itself in the series. This is it. If you want to learn more about it, you can read those books, and our own Holly Rocca is teaching a class on the Enneagram at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings for the next eight weeks. That's the advanced course, right? You... If you're interested in that, you go take that class with her. But I want you to pay attention as we go through this series, because what I'm going to do my best, this, I can't promise you it's going to be perfect, and we'll be back to that in a second. Which one of these needs do you really connect with the most? Now, you're going to connect with all of them. We all do to some degree. But one of these needs is going to be the one that really belongs to you. The need to be perfect, the need to be needed the need to be successful, the need to be understood, the need to be informed, the need to be secure, the need to be free, the need to be strong, the need to be at peace. Don't those all sound like things you can relate to? Okay, but one of these is, is yours. And you may not know that right now, and you may not know it until the end of the series, but as we look at Scripture, and as especially we think about what Scripture says about the gospel that speaks to people who are driven, in some ways, by these obsessions. They're not, they're not just needs. They drive everything. Who are you? And how do you need to hear the truth of the gospel? So let's begin at the beginning. And I happen to be a number one. And I'd like to fix this slide so it looks better for me, Nate. Can you fix it? There we go. <clears throat> Doesn't that feel better? All that crooked stuff that Stephen Corbett came up with and all the, the gradients. and Just give me solid colors in perfectly matched dimension squares. <laughs> Don't clap at that. Good night. Am I telling you something you already know about me? Is that what's happening? Okay. Here's the thing. These needs aren't outside of you, right? It's not just the need to be perfect. It's that I need to be perfect. 
I hear that in my head all the time. I'm not even aware. Do any of you relate to that? That you're just driven by a voice saying, I need to be perfect. And I think underneath that is the sense that in order to be happy, or in order to be good enough, or in order to have the life I want to have, I need to be perfect so that. It's, all, it's, it's always this thing that's out in the future that's keeping me from having the kind of life that I really long to live. I, I remember when I was 11 years old, I, I, I hit a wall, spiritually speaking, where I just... You know how Paul talks about love keeps no record of wrongs? I was keeping a record of wrongs against myself. And I thought about it. It made it hard for me to sleep at night. And I, it was all these things that I had done. It was, you know, a, a stick of gum I had taken from my mother's purse without asking. It was uh, something I'd said to my sister when I was angry and I shouldn't have called her that name. It was, you know, I, 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 when one of my parents got up from the table, I took the Brussels sprouts and I just dumped them into the garbage and pretended like I'd actually eaten them. You know, it was all those things that you do growing up that you know aren't right, but you do them anyway. And I hit a, a wall at 11 where I thought if I stub my toe and get hit by a Mack truck, I'm going, I'm going straight to hell because I've made a lot of mistakes and I haven't told anybody about them. I, I, maybe I've prayed about some of them, but I haven't prayed enough about them. And so I, I got to this place where I remember it distinctly. And what triggered it was that I had accidentally, you know how when you have an older bike and the, the ends of the handlebars wear out and so it's just the metal circle? I had scratched my dad's car and I'd blamed a neighbor kid right? And my dad had believed me because I always told the truth, or so they thought. And he just kind of patted me on the head and said something, you know, how annoyed he was by this neighbor kid. And we walked inside, and I just fell apart and said, Dad, I'm a liar. And I've been lying. I didn't eat the Brussels sprouts. And I went on like this for two and a half hours. And when I was done, my dad said to me, son, why are you so hard on yourself? What, what, where is this coming from? And I couldn't say where it was coming. I thought everybody's mind worked like that. I mean, I had a record of wrongs on everyone in my household. <laughs> the Apostle Paul kind of describes what it's like to live inside of someone's head who always feels like they need to be perfect in Romans 7 verse 19. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Who's going to rescue me from this, this push and pull war inside of me where I know what's perfect, but I, I can't do it? Now, I left his answer off of this passage. Does anyone know his answer? Who saves you from this? Jesus Christ, 
But guess how a perfectionist is tempted to answer that? I'm going to save myself from it because I just haven't worked hard enough yet. I haven't cracked the code. There's a way for me to be perfect. I just have to try harder. I just have to start over. I just have to figure out. And then it becomes, right, not just a a perfectionism project for myself. I want to make you perfect, and that always feels great. Right? You've been on the other side of a perfectionist. You've had them where they think they're loving you by criticizing you because that's what you'd want them to do, right? You'd want them to point out the one thing that's wrong with dinner. Because you want to be perfect too, don't you? See, this is what I, I started realizing the first time I read anything about the Enneagram. I just thought the rest of you weren't as serious as I was about trying to be perfect. <laughs> I didn't realize there were all kinds of people in the world who weren't driven by that obsession. And what a gift that we're not all driven by the same obsession to try to be perfect. And here's what the gospel says to us, those of us in this room. You know, I'd have you put your hand up, but then you'd have to admit you're not perfect, so you're probably not going to do it. For those of us who understand this obsession with we're going to try to be perfect, and we're going to try to make you perfect, and we're going to try to make the world perfect, and we look at the world, and there's all kinds of imperfections everywhere, and how's it ever going to stop? Well, we're just going to try harder. Here's what the gospel says. You are good. Which is not what I wanted to say. I want the gospel to tell me I'm perfect. God's not interested in telling me that. Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, who you can tell I think was maybe a a number one, but I don't know. He continues. He says, in Christ I have a righteousness that's not my own. And it doesn't come from the law or In other words, his ability to keep the law. But rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is a righteousness of God that's based on faith. It is a righteousness of God that's based on trust in God. Not in Paul's ability to pull off every single thing that God asks. This righteousness that I have comes from a relationship with Christ. From knowing Christ personally. From Personally knowing the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, it includes being conformed to to the way of his death, Paul says, so that, you know, somehow I might perhaps reach the goal of resurrection of the dead. It's not that I have already reached this goal, and read this out, out loud with me, or have already been perfected, but I pursue it so that I may grab a hold of it because Christ grabbed a hold of me for just this purpose. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I've reached it, but this this one thing, this is what I do. I forget about the things behind me and I reach out for the things ahead of me. Okay, do you see how the gospel reorients? It's not about my, my ability to perfectly keep a moral track record. It's, it's not about moral perfection that comes through me, it's about this righteousness, this holiness, this wholesome life. When I say wholesome, I mean everything being healthy and whole. That's not going to happen through my effort alone. That's going to happen through Christ alone. 
The gospel means that the Holy Spirit is empowering us to become who God has already declared us to be in Christ. I want you to read that again. Okay? The gospel means that the Holy Spirit is empowering us in the present tense to become who God has already declared us to be in Christ. We are good because God says we are, not because we can prove we are. Of all the the aspects of the gospel that we're going to look at throughout this series, this, this is mine. This is the one I need the most. And of the 7.8 billion people in the world, there's going to be millions of people who need to hear this, who need to believe this, who need to make it internal enough that it starts to drive them instead of insecurity about proving that they're good by being perfect first. Because that's spiritual slavery. It will never work. And it's not how we become the people God wants us to be in Christ. We become who God wants us to be in Christ by believing that what God says about us is true. Nobody in this room is perfect. But everybody in this room, because of Jesus, is good. So I think there's a part of me that there's just a basic misunderstanding of what makes life worth living, what makes relationship worth entering into and risking for, what makes a career fulfilling, what gives my life the direction. I think the answer to all of that before the gospel, in my life, the answer to that is I want, I'm going to be in a relationship so it's a perfect marriage and I'm a perfect father and, and I'm a perfect preacher and, and I'm, a, I'm a perfect son and I, and I know deep down that I'm, I'm not perfect at any of those things. So you know what I am? I'm angry and I'm anxious and I'm trying to find ways to either pretend I'm perfect or I'm trying to find ways to point out the ways you're not perfect because even though I'm not, I'm at least better than you. That's slavery. And it's not just slavery for me. It's slavery for all the people who are unlucky enough to be in a relationship with me. The point of life is not to prove that we can be perfect. The point of life is to believe that we really are good. That that's not the goal. That's the beginning point. And then we grow into that goodness more and more Every single day. That's grace. That we're good and we grow in deeper ways into that goodness until we're good for other people. Not because we're clenching our teeth and we're trying as hard as we can to never make a mistake. But because we we remind them of the goodness of our Father. You know, I... I think it's a basic misunderstanding that I know I have. And part of it is I think the world was perfect at some point. Like if you could go far enough back before anybody made a mistake, like if I had been in the garden instead of Adam and Eve, I might could have helped things be perfect just a few seconds longer. That's not actually the language that God uses in Genesis to talk about how everything started. Do you remember the word that God uses? It's not perfect. Let's read it together. Genesis 1. 
Starting in verse 25, God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, every kind of creature that crawls on the ground, and God saw what? How good it was. And then God said, let us make humanity in our image to be like us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. And God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them, male and female. God created them, and that's what happened. God saw everything he had made, and what? It was very good. It was not very perfect. That's not good grammar, but you know what I mean. That's who we were created to be. And yeah, we've lost touch with that goodness inside of ourselves and we've let, lost touch of, of the goodness in the world and we've, we've lost touch. And the thing is, if you try to recover goodness through perfection, you're going to fail every single time. And you're gonna drive people away. You know, one of the things people say about the church is that we're a bunch of hypocrites. Now, whether that's true or it isn't, what they're saying is you guys talk like you're perfect when your lives aren't perfect, and I'm not buying that. Well, maybe we need to give up the perfection project. And maybe we need to embrace the truth that God says about us, that before we're anything else, we're good. And not that we will be good, but that we're good right now. And that that changes why we do the things that we do. And here's the thing. If I can stop trying to demand that I be perfect, I think I can get to the place where I stop demanding perfection out of you and the world and the church and everything else. This church doesn't need to be perfect, brothers and sisters. What does it need to be? It needs to be good. And this is a good church. I could make a list of things I'd like to change because... I still am in recovery. <laughs> and I always will be. But it's a good church. And you know what? There's goodness in your family. I don't care how dysfunctional it is. I don't care what kind of challenges you have. There's goodness in your marriage. There's goodness in your parenting. There's, there's goodness inside of who you are, regardless of your track record, regardless of how well you're actually managing to pull it off and convince everybody else or impress anybody else. I want you to hear this as you leave this place this morning. You are good. Live that way. You're good. And stop trying to be perfect because that's just another way to say you're trying to be God. The gospel sets us free from that illusion and the disillusion that comes from it where we're constantly losing because we're constantly making small mistakes here and there. And maybe those small mistakes lead to bigger mistakes. And then we start to think that we've somehow managed to ruin everything that's good in this world through our imperfections. But see, goodness and imperfect and, and bad and, and per th those things aren't related the way we think they are. If in your mind, perfect equals good, you need new definitions. And the gospel gives us a way to think about that. We are created, each one of us, in the image of God, and it means at our core, we're his child. And he sees that goodness in us even when we don't know how to find it anymore. So let's, let's leave this moment 
we're, and we're going to sing here in just a, a second, but let's, let's leave this moment as a church community doing our best this week to pray and ask God, to partner with God in seeing the good in ourselves and thanking God for that good because we didn't put it there, God did. Now we can nurture it and nourish it and embrace it, but God puts it there. But here's what I really want you to do this week. You do your very best not to be perfect this week and impress other people with your perfectness and think that's what's gonna draw them into a relationship with God. No, look for the good. Look for it in your school, look for it at the place you work, Look for it in your spouse. Look for it in your siblings. Look for it everywhere. And when you see it, praise it. Name it. Call it out. Because I promise you, if we can seek out and search for the good in one another, and we can praise it, we can, we can recognize it, and we can hold it up, our world is going to get a a little bit closer to the world God has always wanted it to be. Let's stand together now and sing.